Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. From Sugar 23, I'm Angela Ledgerwood and this is Lit Up. Happy Valentine's Day, everyone. I think Valentine's Day is kind of stupid, but I still want recognition on that day from my partner. It's full of contradictions, and this really got me thinking about a 2016 conversation I had with the world-renowned philosopher Alain de Botton. He looks at love and relationships from a rational and realistic point of view. He believes that there is no such thing as a soulmate, and that love is not just about discovering our compatibilities, but it really involves negotiation, empathy, and knowing ourselves. When I recorded this episode way back then, I was single and always felt a little vulnerable in relationships and a little ill-equipped. Now I'm in a good relationship and I still freak out. And when I do, I always return to his great book called On Love. It helps me get through those moments and I hope this conversation and his book will help you too. I'd love to welcome you to the show today. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, your second novel, The Course of Love, has kind of taken so many of your fans back to that first book when you were exploring love kind of as a young man. And I'm wondering, in all those years since, have you been thinking of love all those years as something you'd like to write about again? And definitely. I think that love is just um, one of those things that doesn't disappear as a concern. Um, I think what I wanted to do with this new book was just describe some of the new insights that I've had about love. That the first book I wrote, which was titled On Love in the United States, Essays in Love Elsewhere, confusingly, mm-hmm. um, was very much a romantic look at love. It was a look at um, love from the point of view of someone who thought that really the only thing you need to make a relationship go well is the right person. And I think the new novel starts from a different place. It really understands that even with the right person, there can be problems. And, and that sounds like maybe a naive or simple distinction, but that's really the, the fundamental difference between the two books. Well, and I loved your New York Times piece that just went completely viral uh, last week with the title why you will marry the wrong person. And I wanted to, you know, so much talk about your book has been out there, but one one person has called it worryingly realistic, which I thought was really fun. And I wanted to go back a little bit. Can you explain how and when this romanticism came along in our culture? Sure. Well, I mean, you know, it's just worth saying that the way that we love is not decreed by nature. It's actually a culturally specific thing. Um, and different cultures love very differently. Um, there's that lovely quote from 
the French writer La Rochefoucauld, where he says, there are some people who would never have fallen in love if they hadn't heard there was such a thing. And we may not go as far as that, but the point is, our distinct styles of loving, our expectations of love are culturally formed. And for about the last 150 years in the West, we've been informed by the cult of romanticism, which was an idea that starts up in the minds of poets and writers and philosophers and has now spread to everyone so that even people who've got no idea that they've been influenced by it, nevertheless, in my mind, have been. And romanticism tells us a whole host of things about love. It tells us that good love is forever. Uh, it should last till death. Um, that love is about finding a soulmate. That when you find a soulmate, all loneliness is at an end. It suggests that the way to find the perfect person for you is to follow your instinct or your heart, as it's often called, not reason, that reason is the enemy of a good choice. And also uh, it tells us that sex is incredibly significant and is the crowning achievement of love. And that's why adultery is a tragedy in the romantic view of love, because it's a betrayal of everything to do with love. Well, an interesting talking about infidelity, when I got to that part in the book, and I don't think it's giving away that there is some of that in there, but I, if, I found it so refreshing that it was in there and the ways that the couple deal with it, although the ways that... Um, now, I want to get... Now that we need to um, get the pronunciations right, is it uh, Rabba, Rabbi? The main Rabbi, character. yeah, Rabbi, Rabbi. Yeah, so um, the fact that Rabbi decides not to tell her about it, I felt might have um, got a lot of backlash from people. How is it, what's been the response to that? Um, no, I mean, you know, there's, a, there's an underlying theory about here about secrets. And the romantic view of secrets is that all secrets are bad because true love is based on honesty and that when two people love each other, they open their hearts to one another entirely. And there are some very exciting moments at the beginning of relationships where you really do get a sense that you can tell your lover anything. And um, let's be frank here, some of that is, is around sex sometimes, that, that you feel that your lover can be someone that, you know, maybe you've got some fetishes or interests or sexual curiosities that you've never really been able to kind of confess to anyone. And so you find that you can play these out with another person. And it's it reinforces a sense that at last hypocrisy and lying is out of the window. And, and you've really found a kind of soulmate. They accept you in all your quirks and oddities and compulsions and, and desires. And that's that's lovely. But there does, as relationships settle down, there do come moments when you almost have to make a choice between love on the one hand and honesty on the other. Um, for the simple reason that if we reveal everything that runs through our minds, we are likely very seriously to hurt the person that we love. And it's, it's an uncomfortable thought, but all of us are extremely fragile, vulnerable, and very jealous creatures. And we just don't like certain bits of information paraded in front of us. It's not very nice. And I think that the good lover therefore, um, edits themselves. You know, to be fully yourself in front of another person isn't necessarily very generous. It, indeed, it, it can be um, deeply troubling. And I think that I loved that part because I was thinking about my 20s and 
how if I, I thought that if I was honest with everyone about who I loved and how those feelings changed from one day to the next, that it would somehow absolve my behavior. And now being older, I realized that that was quite a selfish way to love. And your book really hit on that for me. And I thought, I need to remember this. Being polite and kind is often far more um, loving. That's right. I mean, again, like you, this was a learning experience for me um, and, and indeed for my characters because, because really of romanticism, because romanticism just insists that, you know, it's always better just to say what's on your mind and that that's a courageous and bold and lovely thing to do. Um, and then, you know, the, the truth is that um, it can be a way of seriously upsetting your partner. Um, I mean, we know to do this very naturally around children. It, it, you know, part of what it is to be a good parent is constantly editing yourself in the name of love. And I think to some extent, the same goes on in, um, in adulthood. Well, and going back to what you said about this being a process of what you've learned and, you know, kind of infusing that into your characters, I was thinking about some of your other books and um, your, your school and about kind of what makes a full life and where we get our wisdom from now. And it feels like somehow we've lost these places like in religion where we, we learn from our elders. And I was kind of wishing that my mum and dad had sat me down or wrote, you know, a, a book for me to say, look, my, my parents loved me this way and I have these deficiencies and maybe... I should pass this on to you so you can be a better lover or I'm, that's kind of a bit of a rant, but um, how do you feel about how we're passing down wisdom just to have kind of healthy, fulfilling lives? Well, you know, I think what's striking is that the whole idea of studying love or learning love seems incredibly peculiar. Um, you know, it, it, somebody said to you that, that, that they had decided to, to, to study love before falling in love. Um, you know, you'd think that was really unromantic. So we very much believe that loving is something we do by intuition um, and by intuition alone. And I think this is extremely dangerous. I don't mind us having high expectations. I think we should have high expectations in love. But in order to have high expectations, we also need things to underpin those expectations. Um, and I'm looking forward to the age of the psychological marriage, um, the age when people enter relationships with a, a basic healthy understanding of their own psyches and the psyches of their partner, and it becomes normal to talk in a psychologically rich way about your confusions, your doubts, your frustrations, etc. Um, because most of us are still, you know, pretty much in the Stone Age when it comes to um, trying to get across to our partners what it is we really feel. And can you explain the two attachment styles in the book? Because that relates to what you've, you were talking about. You know, one of the things that's um, fascinating about people is how do they respond to upset from a partner? If your partner, who you love and depend on, um, does something to annoy you, frustrate you, or make you doubt um, their love, what do you do? And there tend to be two psychologists have identified really two 
two main responses. The first response is what gets called avoidant. And that means that you just withdraw and you pretend you don't care. So your partner's upset you and you just go cold. You just go, I'm going to go into the next room and read, or um, I'm actually going to be busy all week now. And you don't explain what's wrong. You avoid the emotions that are, that are very distressing. The other kind is to get very rigid and panicked and controlling. And this is called the anxious pattern, where you suddenly become quite procedurally harsh. And you say things like, well, you haven't, you've not taken out the garbage, or um, we've got to leave by three o'clock or something. And these things are, are carrying, these sort of barked orders are carrying a sense that the person you're trying to micro-control is in fact out of your control. And that makes it very painful. Um, so these are, these are what get, psychologists call attachment styles, avoidant and anxious. Now, there are lots and lots of other vocabularies and terms, but it's just one example of how it would help a couple so much to have more words to describe their characteristic reactions to things. Um, it just, it's like having a weather satellite in the sky. It can't avoid the storm necessarily, but it can reassure us what it is where it's coming from, and how soon it might end, all of which are pretty vital bits of information. And, I mean, how, even when you go and you have this language, you know, and you kind of grow with someone and understand how they need to be loved, how still do you keep love alive long-term? Like, are there any um, kind of things that come straight to your mind, kind of these big realisations, having written a book? Well, you know, um, one of the things that kills love, one of the reasons why people can't feel anymore, um, is often not just that they're bored, though the word boredom is often used, it's that they're furious. Mm. But they don't admit that they're furious, but they are. They're furious at the partner for letting them down in so many ways. They've even forgotten quite what the ways were, but they, they're just numb. They're numb with anger. Um, and I think that... Um, it's not about lighting candles uh, or, you know, having a glass of wine. What it is, is having a chance to um, really look over some of the disappointments. I mean, some of the best sex that people will have with one another is when they've both given each other the chance to offload some of the resentment that they're carrying around. And when you see that resentment, if that resent the causes of resentment are actually understood and worked through, you will have better sex than any fancy five-star hotel you might go to for the weekend. That sounds like everyone will be going home. Check that one out. Yeah, that sounds good. It sounds good. Now, kind of not going back to childhoods, but also this idea of how we try to almost improve upon what our parents were able to do and be in terms of relationships. Can you talk a little bit about maybe how your parents informed your search for fulfillment in all of your work or trying to find those sources for humankind? Look, I think that many people's careers can be seen as attempts or lives more generally can be seen as, as being in dialogue with the lives of their parents mm. and to some extent trying to fix some of the things that didn't go right in their parents' lives. And, you know, in different ways, people, people do that. Um, you know, somebody might think that their parents didn't have enough fun. And so they'll be quite keen to make sure that their lives have got an element of fun that their parents didn't find. Or they maybe didn't have financial stability, so they look for financial stability, etc., etc. Um, for me, 
um, my parents were um, very intelligent people who nevertheless really suffered from emotional problems and struggles and issues. Um, like many of us do, nothing sort of outrageous, but um, I, I was just struck by how these people were so competent in many ways and yet so incompetent in the emotional sphere. So a lot of my work as a, as a writer and also running the School of Life has been an attempt to, in a way, to, to give people like my parents or people in general the sort of information they might have really benefited from when trying to run a marriage or trying to stay a more or less balanced human being. And I mean, I'm assuming that because you have started the school of life and you write like this, that you believe that wisdom is teachable then. Um, yes. I mean, I have to believe that. Yeah. Um, it, it, not, not all the time, not to everyone, not in, in, not every bit of it, but broadly speaking, I think it seems peculiar to imagine that, um, you know, you can teach systematically somebody how to perform a surgical operation or land an aeroplane, and yet you can't teach them anything about how to run a relationship. I mean, of course you can. Um, there are definitely things that can be taught. Um, but we, you know, we prefer to fill our airwaves with, with other things. But I, I think, as I say, the real error is this romantic idea that it is more charming, more sincere, truer to just go for it with feeling. Uh, and that's such a disaster. And kind of changing tacks a little bit, when, this is kind of using the title of one of your big books, but when did you discover Proust? And, you know, how did he change your life at the age that you discovered him? So, um, uh, what I love about um, the French writer Marcel Proust is how he manages to write about everyday emotions with such kind of forensic, psychological richness. He, he drills deep inside emotions and states of mind that most of us would just sooner rather forget um, or, or can't really focus on. Um, so the, the novel opens with a 40-page description about what it feels like to be waiting for your mother to come and give you a goodnight kiss when she's got guests. Um, downstairs in the kitchen and you really want her to come up and, and give you a kiss when you're a child. And I think many of us remember that feeling when our parents had visitors round for dinner and there was that slightly sort of excited atmosphere in the house and we were looking for them to come and give us a kiss and that sort of thing. So it's a very, uh, you know, people sometimes imagine that Proust is a really so-called difficult writer who must write about really odd things, um, maybe sort of I don't know, we imagine the most complicated teacher or bit of mathematics we ever encountered. What's what's amazing is that Proust just writes about things that you and I have been through. Um, and he just does it in a way that the reason why it's genius is not because it's complicated, but because it's so accurate about feelings that we normally can't hold on to. He's like a guy with a pair of unbelievably strong um, tweezers that, that manages to hold on to these delicate thoughts that, that most of us just can't hold on to. That's what makes him a great writer. And I've really enjoyed uh, your book, The Art of Travel. And as I was kind of rereading and flipping through it, I couldn't help seeing the parallels between the idea of expectation when we think of going on a holiday with this idea of the expectation of a new relationship and how it can never be what, what you hope for. Um, yeah, that's really interesting, because I think there are um, 
real connections to be made between travel and love. Um, I think in both cases, we tend to latch on to a few aspects of be it a foreign country or another person and decide on, on quite a slender basis of evidence that there's sort of paradise somewhere else. Um, and, you know, we go in search of it. Um, and some of the disappointment is the same in love and in travel. Um, and it's really the idea that no place can be without some of the problems of the place that you came from. And no person can be without some of the problems that you have and that all human beings have, because there's just such a thing as being human, which is a pretty mixed bag at the best of times. You know, we're all we're all kind of tough to live with and tough to be with um, uh, from close up. And so those are the sort of correspondences I would put. Yeah, I just, I mean, like you say in the book and in both books, this idea of thinking will be someone else when the right circumstances present themselves, whether it's, you know, going to Barbados or Paris and then still finding yourself kind of lethargic or something or in a new relationship finding that, you know, you're still living with the same anxieties that you had before. Yes. I mean, I think, you know, someone asked me the other day, how do you know when to get out of a relationship mm. and when to stay in? Um, and, you know, I think the moment to get out of a relationship is when you're absolutely sure that the problems you're having can really be specifically tied to the lover that, that, that you have. That, that the problems are coming really just from them. And therefore, if you were with somebody else, you wouldn't have those or, or indeed any comparable sort of problems. I, I think the moment when not to leave is when you realize that actually, to some extent, your unhappiness belongs to human nature, mm -hmm. that some of the frustrations are in their specifics, maybe tied to one person, but in their more general forms, they are, they are part of what makes human life kind of tricky. And I think um, at that point, don't leave. Well, I liked how you say melancholy isn't a disorder that needs to be cured. It's how it's a type of intelligent grief. Could you talk a little bit more about that um, in terms of how sometimes our sadness is trying to tell us something? Sure. Well, you know, here we are sitting in the United States and um, you know, melancholy doesn't have a really big profile here. Um, you're, you're, you're supposed to be kind of pretty upbeat. And um, and if you're not, you, maybe you should get medicalized because uh, there's something kind of wrong with you. Yeah. Um, I suppose one of the great things about coming from the UK, there are not many great things, but one <laughs> of the good things is, um, is that the, the British do melancholy quite well. Um, and, and what melancholy really means is a kind of acceptance of how many things in life just cannot be fixed um, and have to be merely mourned. Um, and they include the fact we're going to die, the fact that other people won't understand us for the most part, um, that many of our ambitions won't be lived, uh, honoured, um, and that in love, many things, even with the most wonderful person, many things won't be possible. We'll, we'll have to forego things. Um, this is not necessarily a fashionable line, but I think it's a true line. And I think it's better to follow that line than the opposite, which is a kind of winner-takes-all view, which 
because most of us don't end up in that winning position, leaves us paranoid and hurt and lonely. There's a quote from the book I'll read that I really love, and it's when the couple are having a a fight, you know, kind of their kind of fever pitch climactic fight. And it's, he's impelled to say the very worst things to try to smash the relationship to see if it's real and worth trusting. And gosh, I recognize that in myself and having um, kind of when you're in that moment and trying to push and push and push to see, um, you know, whether there's going to be some incredible feel, rush of adrenaline to save it. And I'm, how do, how do we deal with those climactic points? Because, you know, like you also say, there are some things that you can't take back. Mm. Um, look, I think it is one of the great freedoms when you're married to someone that you know that they're going to have to put up with you to quite a large extent. And you'll have to put up with them. And though that's kind of awful in some ways, there is a freedom sometimes that you can be, you know, properly kind of extreme in ways that you wouldn't dare to be with anyone else. And that does lead to sometimes a, a greater kind of closeness because you think, my God, we've both, we've both been so difficult with one another. And if you can work through it and sort of forgive one another that, then there's something almost beautiful in the, in the pain that you've um, caused one another. Um, it's quite the opposite from a kind of innocent, gentle love of the first few days or weeks. We're very, very far from that. It's, it's the love that arises after you've thrown every insult in the book at your lover and they at you. And then you both smile at one another and realize that despite all of that, you do kind of think you're, the other one's pretty great. Um, and there's, there's a kind of beauty in that just, just in itself. It's, it's quite weird, but but there we are. It's reminding me of another part I love that I'll read here. You've said, in an ideal world, marriage vows would be entirely rewritten. At the altar, a couple would speak thus. We accept not to panic when, some years from now, what we are doing today will seem like the worst decision of our lives. Yet, we promise not to look around either, for we accept that there cannot be better options out there. Everyone is always impossible. We are a demented species. I just, I laughed at that so much and loved it. And I just went to a wedding on Sunday night and I thought, oh my gosh, wouldn't it have been funny if they'd used those vows? <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, you know, a big enemy of good relationships is self-righteousness. And self-righteousness stems often from a belief that you're perfect and, and the other person should be perfect too. And that's a really unhelpful background philosophy to get into a relationship with. It's so much easier if we start from the view that, in fact, I'm crazy, you're crazy, we're both broken, but, you know, we're going to try and make a go of it. Um, that's, that's a much more generous, it's dark, but it's a generous way, it's a generous darkness with which to begin a relationship. So one of my ambitions is to design a marriage ceremony um, that's better, but um, I, I may need to, you know, take a bit of time over that. But wouldn't that be fun? Oh, I think that'd be brilliant. And at the same wedding, I was laughing with another friend who isn't married. And it's almost like, a, you know, when you're young, the red flags are certain things. You know, you get amongst your friends and you're like, ooh, red flag. You know, 
he drinks too much. I mean, that is kind of a red flag, but it's almost when you get a bit older, not having been married before is almost a red flag or not having had an eight-year relationship is the is the new red flag because it's That's as interesting. If you can't hold on, you know. Um, That's interesting, yes, yes. And then, therefore there's a kind of loneliness if you have had a longer relationship. You sort of think this person wouldn't really understand. They they may be a little too innocent. And that innocence is, um, it, you know, is quite off-putting. Um, yeah, and when you talked about infidelity in the book, something that really resonated with me is that once you have had, if you've had someone um, cheat on you, the pain is so great that you really are, very inclined to try to never inflict that on someone again. That's right. That's right. And there's such a difference, isn't there, between thinking, well, you know, cheating is not a good idea. Um, that's sort of like, you know, a, 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 a sort of mild ethical injunction that we all agree with. But it's quite different to actually maybe being on the receiving end of someone who's cheated on you or cheating on somebody yourself, but it all going terribly wrong, you know, that will properly teach you about fidelity. And I think the, you know, I think it's unfair, the assumption that we should all understand from the beginning, why fidelity is such a problem. It doesn't seem like such a problem. Why would that be such a big deal? And yet, certainly my characters in the novel generally discover, uh, gradually discover that, you know, it probably is really a bit of a problem. Well, and I thought it was very interesting how you were talking about fury before, and how so much of a acting out we do is because we're furious at our partner for not loving us or thinking we're attractive. And sometimes we, instead of dealing with that and ask, being vulnerable to that person we love and saying, I feel so crushed, that, you know, we go out and get it somewhere else. Yes. I mean, I think that's fascinating, the idea that... Um... We try and avoid vulnerability through nastiness. And it seems so counterintuitive. When you see someone being really mean and strong, going like things like saying things like, I don't want to see you for a week, or uh, I'm going on a journey or something, you know, and you think, oh, well, they're, they're so invulnerable. But often it's because they're so vulnerable. Um, and, and there can be that weird thing where an affair, having an affair, looks like it means that you don't care about someone. Whereas actually what it may really mean is caring about someone has grown so painful that you need to show that you don't care. You may need to make this exaggerated show that you don't care. Of course you do. And so in a weird way, the affair is a tribute to the person you're betraying. It's actually, if I can put it this way, a sign of love of the person that you still love, but that love has become too painful yeah, it's going back to this, the smash, seeing how far you can go or almost daring that person you love, you know, how much do they love me? How much will they accept me even if I try to destroy us? I'd love to have had classes on how to be a kinder partner in college. Absolutely. That's the sort of stuff we do at the School of Life. That's what we do there. And at the School of Life, oh, excuse me, can you take online classes or is it all in person? 
We put all our content online on YouTube. So there's tons of uh, uh, little animations and things. Um, can't do an online class, but you can. And then we also got a, a blog called The Book of Life. And that's got a huge amount of articles and, and content and material that people might find helpful. Ex okay, excellent. I'll pass that on to everyone. And then just to end on, um, not even related to romance uh, particularly, do you have uh, daily rituals or a, a routine that helps you be mindful every day? Um, I do try and download the contents of my brain on a fairly regular basis. And that normally involves sitting in bed with a pad and paper and just thinking about the, you know, in a way, uncoiling the anxieties and thoughts that have maybe been lingering in the mind uh, in in compressed forms, giving them time to expand, seeing what they are. That's that's my form of what, what I would call philosophical meditation. And is that where you get the ideas for the next project? Uh, to some extent, yes, yes, absolutely. Some, yeah, absolutely. Some ideas come from that process of sort of free association. Doing it in the bath is also great, and um, the car car is quite good for it too. Well, um, I did ask you a question for Cosmo, and I loved your answer so much. And it was about uh, how do you manage a marriage and society obsessed with love, or how do we keep the love alive? And I'm not sure. Oh, your answer was about um, recognizing every day that it's a choice to be there, not that that person is just um, kind of yours to beat around and I just wondered if you had any more comments on that so we can end on a positive note well I mean you know in a way marriage can give you a feeling that you own the other person and when you feel that you own something sometimes you're not that grateful for it and the point is none of us ever owns anyone else really um, and there is something amazing about every human being and if somebody's decided to share their life with you you sort of have a responsibility a care of duty to them and to appreciate what is wonderful about them as well as tolerate obviously what is broken tricky and most of all scared in them oh i love that i'm gonna write that out <laughs> i already have the other answers on my fridge so i'll do it for this one too but thank you so much for talking thank about you it's this been course. such a pleasure um and best of luck for the rest of the tour thank i can't you. wait to follow it thanks so much thanks for everything lit up is a podcast from sugar 23 it's hosted by me, Angela Ledgerwood, and is produced by Liam Billingham. Mike Mayer and Michael Sugar are the executive producers. The theme music is by Andre Radovsky. Until next time, bye everyone. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.